Hey, this is Scott. Thanks for checking out the podcast of Grace Fellowship Church. Hope it's encouraging for you and helps you take your next steps in your faith journey. Enjoy. 1 Corinthians 13, 4 through 11. Love is patient. Love is kind. Love does not envy. It does not boast. It is not proud. It does not dishonor others. It is not self-seeking. It's not easily angered. It keeps no records of wrongs. Love does not delight in evil, but rejoices in truth. It always protects, always trusts, always hopes, always perseveres. Love never fails. But where there are prophecies, they will cease. Where there are tongues, they will be distilled. Not distilled, they'll be stilled. Um, Where there is knowledge, it will pass away. For we know in part, we prophesy in part, but when completeness comes, what is in part disappears. When I was a child, I talked like a child. I thought like a child. I reasoned like a child. When I became a man, this is Paul speaking, I put the ways of childhood behind me. Today we're in part three of a series called You Don't Complete Me. Uh, I'm looking forward. I hope you are. This is a series for folks who maybe are someday thinking about being married, for folks who are married individuals that would love to make their marriage better, and it's also for folks that maybe you're in community with or your family members of someone else who's married, and you might have an opportunity to encourage them, speak truth and life into their hearts. The series matters to me because it breaks my heart to watch people make relational decisions that ultimately undermine their relationships. And it breaks my heart to see people who are currently in a relationship make some sort of decision that's going to undermine a future relationship as well. And we said the first week that there's some of the reasons that there's confusion on this topic, kind of chaos really in this topic, is because of myths that are really common in our culture. And the moment we kind of call these out, most of us can kind of see like, hey, they're, they're just myths and they're, they're not true. But the first one is this, it's the right person myth. And it's not so much that, hey, there's only one right person out there for me and there's no one else. We always kind of know that that's not true. That's really not what we're talking about. What we're talking about is the myth that once I find that one person, that all of a sudden I'll become incredible. And all of the problems, challenges magically are just going to go away and I'm just going to change. That all of my habits, all of my insecurities will just go away. And the problem is that I just haven't met the right kind of person. But that's a myth, isn't it? And isn't it true that we all grow up and kind of fantasize about finding the right person, but next to nobody grows up fantasizing about becoming the right kind of person. And so the question that we're asking throughout the series is, are you becoming the kind of person that you're looking for, ultimately is looking for? If you're in a marriage, are you the kind of person, are you becoming the kind of person that you're hoping for, is hoping for? Are you spending as much time and attention in becoming the right person as you are in trying to find the right person? person. The second myth that we looked at was the promise myth. The promise myth goes like this, that a promise replaces the need for preparation. That unlike any other area of life, when it comes to relationships, that I don't actually have to prepare, that I can just promise my way to an ending. Like if I just have the vow and the party and have everyone together and we have this ceremony that I'll have everything that I need. If I find that one right person and I promise them that everything's going to turn out okay. But we know this. We know that a promise is no substitute for preparation in so many areas of our lives. 
That's saying, I do, ultimately, it makes you accountable. And that's needed. That's necessary. I, I, I think it actually needs to be there. But it doesn't make you capable. It makes you accountable, but it doesn't make you capable. And when you're accountable, but you're not capable, you're going to end up being miserable. This is, why, this is why some of you dropped out of certain classes in college. Because you were accountable, but you are capable. And so you say, maybe I should change my major because I'm just not having a lot of fun right now. I'm not capable of, of this. And so we, I, I just don't want my kids, I don't want our students, I don't want us to have that same kind of experience in a relationship. So really we have to prepare. We have to put in the hard work. And this is where following Jesus makes all the difference. That he doesn't just make your life better, but he actually makes you better at life. When you read the New Testament, what you're going to discover is that Jesus doesn't really tell folks, hey, I want you to pray to me. He says, I want you to follow me, follow after me, and you're going to become something different and something new. And so if we would say, okay, Jesus, I'm going to follow after you. What's my life going to look like? What's that going to include? He would say, when it comes to your relationships, I'm going to point you to one underlying principle, one truth. And everything beyond that is just kind of application, it's commentary, it's fleshing that out. Everything hangs on to this one thing, that you would love one another. And, and my cynical heart, when I read that, it just makes me think of Bill and Ted's Excellent Adventure. Like, love, look, be excellent to one another. Right? Like, it's, is it really that simple? Is it just granola, frou-frou, like, just love everybody? No, because what Jesus is talking about is not love someone else, even like the golden rule, the way that you want to be loved. And it's not love someone else the way that your mom or dad showed you love. It's not imagine, it's not even love someone else the way that you imagine love should be. He takes it so much deeper than that. He says, love the other person the way that I loved you. The way that God loved you through Christ. Which to his first century, first century followers, it didn't make a lot of sense to them, but I just imagine and after they saw the resurrected Christ, and seen by 500 witnesses, and 45 days later, they watched him go back to the throne room of God, and all of a sudden, it just like dawned on them, these words of Christ sort of washing over them, the Holy Spirit reminds them about what Jesus said, and all of a sudden, they're like, oh my gosh, now it makes sense to me. Like, now I know what that love looks like, because it's not just like well-wishing love, this is this self-sacrificing love, the kind of love that lays its life down for his friends. And then Jesus would say, listen, I have to leave, and I know you love me and everything, but listen, the way that I have loved you, I want you to demonstrate that in your love for everyone else. That I, that I want you to know the love that I have given you, but then I want you to live it out in relationship with people around you. And then as, as folks would come alongside this thing called Christianity, and they would peer over the edges... They would be shocked not by how you vote, not by what your skin color is, not by how much money you make, but Jesus would say, they'll know you're my disciples by how you love one another. That would be our calling card. That would be the thing that would set us apart. So Jesus finishes his ministry. He gives his disciples the charge. And then their job was simply to take what Jesus said and to pass it on to just speak the words of Christ. Now, this is a bit of an aside, but to me, it's really fascinating. And you can you can wrestle with whether or not you believe that Jesus is who He says He is, and you've got to figure that out on your own. But there's one thing that's true: is that historians and scholars, when they look at the first century and this thing called Christianity, it wasn't even called that for a while. It's called followers of the way. 
that these followers of Jesus, they believed that Jesus resurrected from the grave. There was no contention about this. And here's why. It's not only because of what is actually in Scripture, but it's actually what's not in Scripture, what's not in the historical accounts. Because, see, Jesus was not the first person that claimed to be a Messiah. There were other people that would show up and they would say, well, I'm, I'm the Messiah, follow me. And they would gather followers. But then those followers would watch their leader die not come back from the grave. And when that happened, one of those followers would say, well, I've got to take the mantle. And so they would call themselves the Messiah, and they would now produce new teachings on their own. This happened. Non, non-biblical texts record this happening in the first century. But when you read the Gospel accounts, James, Peter, John, none of them came back around and said, hey, Jesus is dead. Now I'm the new Messiah. Paul doesn't do that. What do they do? They simply say the words of Christ and they say, this is what you need to know about this this man that lived and showed us how to love. And so the Apostle Paul, as he's meeting with these non-Jewish followers of Jesus, many of them have sat under the teachings of Jesus or the teachings of the Apostles. So as they're sitting there, they'd say, well, you can go ask Stephen. Stephen sat next to him. Stephen heard it. But if you weren't there and you didn't hear it, hear the words of Jesus. And this is what it means to live them out. And so he starts to put flesh on this one central theme. This is how Christians should live. And he starts to define what it means to love like Jesus did. This is what we called last week the fine print. We started this passage. But this isn't like, aha, I got you, fine print. We said this is the fine print that makes you fine. That's what someone yelled out, hot. Makes you hot. No, it's even deeper than that. It, it makes you smooth and mellow and refined. It makes you worth finding. This is the stuff when we look at these words of Paul that we've got to press into living out and bracing. We've got to figure this and prepare now. Now, just as an aside, before we hit this, if you're a student and you're in the room, there's something important here. You have a unique opportunity that adults don't have right now. Don't miss this. You have an opportunity to practice this stuff now while you're at home so that you'll end up being good at them later. The problem is we tend to think this way. Well, you know, in the future, I'll be out on my own. I'll, I'll, I'll call my own shots. I'll, I'll find the person that I'm going to you know, love and I'm going to figure it all out. But listen, I'm telling you, at home is the place to figure this out. And the problem is this, is that when we start thinking about it, we start saying, well, it's just my mom. It's just my dad. It's just my brother. And the challenge is, it's just my mom becomes, it's just my wife. It's just my husband. And we start finding less honor inside the home than we do outside of the home. Why? Because we never practiced it. We never put it into action. Because we use our best behavior as a means to an end. That's why you're on your best behavior when you're interviewing for a job. It's why you're on your best behavior when you're searching for a partner. Once you found them, oh, you're well, it's just my husband. It's just my wife. And your Savior says, listen, no, 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 no. Wait a minute. That's not what it means to follow me. That's not how this works. That's how everyone else does it. But you're supposed to love as I have loved you. Which means that the more intimate the relationship, when you look at how Jesus lived, the more intimate the relationship, the more important the relationship, the more heightened the standard of love. So there's no such thing. There's no such thing as, it's just my little brother. It's just my sister. It's just my mom. It's just my dad. Jesus says, I want you to follow me. Practice all of this. And when you do, I'm telling you guys, 
If you practice this, students in the room, listen to me. If you practice this now, if you figure this out now, you will be way ahead of the game. Which means that inside, as you're thinking about someone that you might want to join your lives with, look at how they treat their mom. Look at how they treat their dad, how they treat their siblings. It's going to tell you a lot. This is what Paul says, okay? Paul comes along, he unpacks this. I want to review what we talked about last week. The first thing we said was that love is patient. Love isn't pushy. Just like God accommodated to our pace, accommodated to what our, our, our capacity, we're supposed to accommodate to the capacity and the pace of other people around us. I had someone lovingly kind of wrestle with this this week, and they said, well, I'm a really patient person, except for when they don't do things when I want them to do it. <laughs> and I said, sounds like you're wrestling with it the right kind of way. That's right. How did God accommodate to you? The second thing we said is love is kind. Love is kind. Basically, it means that you're loaning the other person your strength other than, rather than reminding them of their weakness. This is just like God did for you. He said that love does not envy, it does not boast, it is not proud. Those three things together show us that love allows the other person to take the spotlight. Love doesn't have to step into the attention light all the time. Love allows the other person to get credit and the attention even when they may not deserve it. Because, listen, isn't that what our Savior did with us? Isn't that how he behaved with us? Even the Son of Man, it says in Mark 10, did not come to be served, but to serve and give his life as a ransom for many. Last week we saw that love doesn't dishonor other people, doesn't act disgracefully. It means that we treat other people like they're more important than us. They're not more important than us. We just treat them as if they are more important because God would say, listen, I want you to treat them more important because that's how I treated you. And I sent my son to give up his life to pay for all of your sin. Because in that moment, listen, I put you ahead of me. So if you're going to follow me, I want you to put others ahead of you. Not because they're better. Not because they deserve it, but because that's what God did with us. And that's where we're going to pick up on the fine print from last week. So we're in 1 Corinthians 13, verse 5. You can follow along in the Orange Bibles if you'd like, because it'll also be on the screen. 1 Corinthians 13, 5 says this. It says that love, when we think about getting the fine print, love is not self-seeking. It's not self-seeking. We don't use that phrase very often. The, the Greek language was the word zeteo, and it means to seek after your own advantage. So we would say it this way. We would say love is not selfish. Love isn't selfish. I'm not going to seek my own advantage. I'm going to seek after the advantage of the others. So I would put it this way, that love puts the needs and the interests of others first. It puts the interests and the needs of others first. So interest. Like, what are you interested in? I would love to talk about for 30 minutes what I'm interested in, but let's talk about your story, your life, which means this, that love is going to get great at asking good questions. Love puts the interest and the needs of other people first. Now, we're all smart enough to know this, that if the world would just, like, put this into practice, wouldn't it solve, like, 90% of the conflicts that you and I observe? If two people would decide to put the other person first... The, the relationship problem would now all of a sudden become, well, no, no, well, you get to pick the meal. No, 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 you get to pick the meal. What movie do you want to watch? No, you pick the movie. You get, you get, it's your turn this time. And you just try to out-love each other. That's a different kind of problem, isn't it? That's a great kind of problem to have. 
We're going to actually talk about that at length next week. I don't want you to miss it. It's going to be one of the single most powerful indicators of health and ways that we can move towards health in your relationships, so don't miss that. But listen, when two people decide to put the other person first, it solves most of the relationship problems. And here's why. Because in the conflict, most relationship problems have a theme. That both people want the same thing. They want their way. I want my way. Right? In most arguments that I get in with people, there's something I have massively in common with the other person, and that is we both want our own way. And goodness, if, if two people could recognize that and stop in the middle of their arguments and just say, whoa, 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 hold on, hold on, hold on. You know what the problem is right now? Here's what the problem is. The problem is that I'm just not getting what I want. That would make such a massive difference. I'm, it shuts down the whole argument. Because anyone who has any level of self-understanding and reflection would stop and say, okay, well, you know, the other part of the problem is that I'm not getting what I want. And when two people can recognize that that's the problem, man, you can work through a lot. And it has to begin with that commitment that I'm not going to be selfish. Now, just a little tip for those people who are thinking about dating or getting ready to date. The quickest way to find out how self-centered the other person is is for you to not be self-centered. For you to decide 100%, I am not going to be self-seeking. And then all of a sudden, you start to realize just how self-seeking the other person is. Because when you give and give and give and give and give, and they take and take and take and take, I'm telling you, you can see where their heart is. Love is not self-seeking. It is in our nature to be self-seeking. Jesus says, listen, that's why I don't want you to follow your appetites. I don't want you to follow your impulses. I don't want you to follow the way that your mom was, the way that your dad was, the way that your friends say that you should behave, the way you saw it in a movie or read it in a book. I, you should follow me. I gave my life for you, and I want you to look for ways to give your life away to other people around you. When two people do that, man, something extraordinary happens because you go from trying to find the right kind of person to becoming the kind of person that's worth finding and joining your life with. Love is not self-seeking. He goes on and he says, it is not easily angered. Not e- and I highlighted the word easily angered because, listen, if you're in a relationship with anybody, there's gonna, no one can ever not be angry 100% of the time. You can't avoid it. But he says, if you're going to love other people the way that God loves us, you're not easily angered. Your Bibles might use the word easily provoked. And it's interesting, there's actually two meanings behind the word. The first one has to do with, like, it literally means sharp. Sharp. So it's someone who, it's this picture of sharpening a sword or a blade. They're not in battle yet, but they're sharpening their sword. And every time something happens to them, they're sharpening their sword. They may lash out, they may not. But with every offense, they're provoked, and so they sharpen. The other term is a cooking term. A cooking term. And it means, like, to be stirred up. It's kind of an old-timey phrase. Boy, I'm so, I'm so stirred up, I could just holler at him. Anybody grow up hearing your mom say that? Right? Right? Isn't that sometimes feel like what happens on the inside? Like, you get so, it's like, your inside is just stirred up. Apostle Paul says, listen, when you're going to decide to love like God does, you're not going to be easily wound up. You're not easily ticked off. You're not easily stirred up. You're not sharpening the blade and getting ready for it. In fact, 
Some of your translations might say that love is long-suffering. Long-suffering. Are you, are you long-suffering? Here's what love does. Love absorbs. Love absorbs. It's a great word. Because this is what it means. It's saying, I'm not, I'm not writing off. I'm not writing off what you did or your behavior. I'm not saying it doesn't matter. I'm not saying there's no offense. It's recognizing that there is, and it has to go somewhere. I have to do something with it. And so here's what I'm going to do. I'm not going to reflect it back. I'm not going to pretend that it's not true. But I'm not going to sharpen. And I'm not going to get all stirred up. I'm going to absorb it. And I'm going to absorb it with patience, and I'm going to absorb it with compassion. You know what it means to absorb something? Like we think about like a paper towel absorbing liquid. We know that. But did you know energy can be absorbed as well? Like a shock absorber. And there's going to be times when you're in the middle of a difficult conversation with somebody and you just have to absorb their energy. But here's the question. Here's the question. Are you easily angered? Are you easily angered? Are you sharpening your blade? Do you realize that's a you issue? But that's a, that's a love issue, and you need to start practicing, absorbing, and understanding, and listening. But I know what you're thinking. Well, the right person won't make me angry. And I just haven't found the right person yet. And the reason I'm so angry is because he's not right for me, or she's not right for me. So I just need to find somebody that won't make me angry. But there's the myth, isn't it? If I find the right person, I'm not going to have to practice this. And when I find the right person, they're not even going to make me angry. And you know what? You're right. It's true. They won't make you angry. But did you know no one has ever made you angry? Because that anger is inside of you. They just brought it out of you a little bit. That's deep inside. And you might say, well, I'm just going to be done with this person. But that anger is still going to be there and it's going to come out on somebody else. To learn to follow Jesus is to learn to deal with what's inside of you before it even comes out of you. To learn to absorb rather than reflect. And for some of you, this is not an issue. Not an issue at all. But for others of us, man, it's a big, a big issue. But at the end of the day, it's really a you issue. He goes on and he says, love is not self-seeking. It's not easily angered. It keeps no record of wrong. In other words, love... Love doesn't have a file drawer and, oh, okay, here, look, I'm going to look up what happened. On July the 20th, you put the toilet paper roll on so that it was coming over the top rather than the back. And listen, this isn't the first time we've had to deal with this. And so look, it's happening again. I'm going to put another file in the drawer. Like love doesn't, love doesn't do that. Have you ever noticed that relational record keepers rarely keep track of their own records? You ever notice that? They have all kinds of files on you, but they can't remember anything that they've done. They have more memory. They have all about your past and your failures, and they have less memory of their own. Do you ever wonder why we insist on doing this? Like what's happening inside of us that makes us remember this? I think there's a part of us that doesn't want to forget, and we're afraid that if we, we forget, maybe it's going to happen again, and we won't be ready for it. And so we remember, and we analyze, and we do all of it in order to protect ourselves so that it will never happen again. But you see the irony in this, don't you? That in order to ensure something never happens again, 
You insist on remembering it. In order to remember it, you find yourselves reliving it and you play tape over and over again. You're thinking about it every single time and you think, I should have responded this way. If only I had done this or that. And you, you relive it over and over again, just as if it had happened. And remembering, listen, remembering how people have hurt you in order to protect yourself will end, inevitably end up destroying or hurting your relationship. When your love doesn't know how to absorb or deal with sin and failure, it destroys and it crushes. So let's just talk about you for a moment. And you don't, you don't have to, please don't answer this out loud. But do you enjoy finding it when the other person messes up? Is there something inside of you that just goes, aha, I caught them. You've caught them messing up. Like, that's messed up. Like, that, you should stop that. But don't stop it because I'm the boss of you. Stop it because that's not what God does with you. We should take our cues from our Heavenly Father. He sent His Son into the world to die for our sin. And listen, He's got a file cabinet on you a mile long. But He never opens it. He hasn't forgotten. He just doesn't bring it up. And He says this, this is what I want you to do for other people. And listen, this is, this is, where, this is where Christianity is groundbreaking. No other major world religion out there has, has some other alternative way out of this because following Jesus, what it does is it introduces the antidote for being a hyperactive watchdog against someone else's faults. It presents an alternative to that kind of record keeping because the gospel of Jesus Christ introduces us to forgiveness. Forgiveness. It's this conscious decision that I'm not going to define somebody by what they do wrong. You know, forgiveness, is, it's not glancing over it. It's not saying it never happened. It's absorbing it. Because that's what God did for us. Jesus, He absorbed the payment of my sin. When God could have pulled out the record, Jesus absorbed it. The way we say it is that Jesus paid a debt that He didn't owe. And I owed a debt that I could not possibly pay. That's forgiveness. And God says, this is what I want you to do in your relationship. So we would say, well, that's difficult. Of course it's difficult. It's all difficult. But forgiving and then pretending to forget is always the best bet. Forgiving and pretending to forget is always the best bet. And in love, if you're a parent, if you're a spouse here, if you're in a relationship, you can be exactly right and end up exactly alone. In other words, you can be right about what you say 100% of the time and nobody's going to want to be around. And it won't be because you're wrong. It'll be because you're exactly right. And you just couldn't keep that stupid file cabinet drawer shut. You kept bringing it up and you were 100% right. I mean, your details and your notes and you knew the day and your memory and it was perfect. And nobody wants to be around you. And your Heavenly Father, man, He's got a better way. He says, I want you to forgive and then I want you to live like you forgot because that's what I did for you. As far as the east is from the west, he remembers our sins no more. And he's kept the file cabinet drawer on you shut. He nailed it shut when he nailed his son to the cross. Besides, let's be honest. That kind of record keeping, it's a power play. Why is it a power play? Because when you hold a record against someone, it's having power over them. 
And love does not power up, love powers down. Love does not present power over, love presents support under. That's what Jesus did. Very, very nature of God did not consider equality with God something to be grasped, but he put upon himself being the, a servant. And he says, now follow me. Follow me into your marriage. Follow me into how you parent. Follow me into how you're a friend to other people. Follow me as a boss. Take this mindset, this upside-down way of approaching life into every single relationship that you're in. And then, and then Paul, in 1 Corinthians 13, he kind of steps into what feels like the grand finale of a fireworks display. He says, love doesn't delight in evil, but rejoices with the truth. It always protects. I love this. It always protects. It means that it's going to keep the bad things out. Love looks for a way to keep bad things out of a relationship. Which means, this, and this sounds a little harsh, but if you're smuggling something, if you're smuggling debt, if you're smuggling bad habits, if you're smuggling another relationship into that relationship, you're bringing something that has the potential to undermine your, your marriage and your relationships. You're not protecting it. Don't look for ways to smuggle in. And then kind of these fireworks go off. He says, love doesn't delight in evil, rejoices with the truth. It always protects. It always trusts. It always hopes. It always perseveres. Because there's a choice. There's always a choice. Love chooses to see the best, to hope the best, to believe the best. And then love chooses to overlook the rest. So, I want to put this list up here, if you'll do that for me, Dakota. Here's the list, all at one time. I just want to think about it for a moment. This is what God's love looks like for us, and then this is what it's supposed to look like for other people. Love is patient. Love is kind. It's not jealous or arrogant. It's honoring. It's selfless. It's not easily angered. It's not a scorekeeper. But instead, it's always protecting, always trusting, always hopeful, always persevering. When I, when I look at this list, I think, you know what? I get like a D minus. <laughs> Maybe when I'm really on my best behavior, I can pull off a D minus. You look at this list and you think, man, I could never be all of that stuff. I mean, who could do that? You've got to be kidding. I understand. I understand all of that. But here's what I want you to acknowledge. If you look at this list, if you're married, isn't this what you're hoping for? Isn't this what you want your spouse to embody? I mean, let's look at this list here for just a moment. And I want you to mark on this list the things that you don't or don't expect from your spouse. That you would just maybe have lunch with them later this afternoon and say, hey, you know what? You're off the hook on this one. I don't really need this from you. How about patience? Gosh, I need patience. I'm like, kind, yeah, I need him to be kind. He doesn't take the spotlight. Uh, yeah, I, for sure. You know, they're, they're not arrogant. And I need someone who's going to be humble like that. They're honoring, absolutely. They're selfless, without question. Not easily angered, for sure. Not a scorekeeper. Man, do I need not a scorekeeper. Protecting. Man, I want her to protect our relationship. Trusting. I need trust. Hopeful. I don't want her to be in despair. So we would, we would look at this list and we would say, I want that list, but I can't be all that list. And that's, that's where the gospel interacts with our hearts because Jesus says, listen, I want to do this work deep inside of you. And by the way, don't miss what we're going to talk about next week because there's a reason why God has us in these relationships because it's actually the pot that kind of stirs up in us and refines us. And 
and helps us become this kind of person. This is the kind of fruit that Jesus wants to bear in our lives. And my hunch is this, that as you look at this list, the person that you're hoping for would not strike anything off this list. Then Paul, as he continues in 1 Corinthians, he just kind of zooms out. It's like there's like a, a pause or a beat in the text here. And he says this. He, he just kind of talks about himself. He pulls us in closer. He says, when I was a child, I talked like a child. I thought like a child. I reasoned like a child. He says, when I was a boy, that's just the way I operated. And nobody criticized me for thinking that way because it was only natural. And he kind of pulls us in, he stares at us for a moment, and he says this, when I, when I became a man, when I became an adult, I put the ways of childhood behind me. And it was his gentle way of saying, listen, let's have a different kind of love. Let's have a grown-up love. Because when I was a child, I thought about love and I fantasized about love. And I reasoned about love the way that a child reasons about love. And I thought, well, I'm a prince and I'm going to meet my princess and we're going to live happily ever after, like a Taylor Swift love song. That's how the movies are. That's how the love songs are. But listen, we're, we know it doesn't work that way. We're adults. I don't think that way. And so Paul would just say, hey, let's abandon that storybook version. Let's abandon those kind of cultural playbooks. Let's abandon those assumptions that our culture has ingrained into us. And let's press into loving each other the way that God through Christ loved us. Which means you actually have to start thinking about that. You actually have to start going deeper in what the gospel means in your own heart. And here's the really scary part, and this is, this is part of what we're going to talk about next week. Don't miss, don't miss part four, okay? Because it's in that pop of relationship where the heat starts turning up, and you start seeing your own lack of patience, and you start seeing your own lack of kindness. But when you can submit your heart to the Master and the Heavenly Father that loves you and wants to produce fruit in you, when you abide in Him, He's going to start to refine you and turn you into something fine, something worth finding, something worth keeping, something worth hoping for. And the question is, are, just, are you willing to do that kind of work? Students, do you guys want to have satisfying, soul-nurturing relationships that are healthy? Would you start incorporating this into your life now? There's not a person that's been married for more than a few months that wouldn't look back and say, man, I wish I had started learning this when I was your age. And you have that opportunity now. Married folks, would you start pressing into this? Start gaining this kind of muscle, becoming the person that you're hoping for, was hoping for? Can we submit ourselves to that? Can we abandon these assumptions and can we press into what God wants for us? And join us next week. I'm excited to start and kind of look at a different aspect. We're going to open the book of Ephesians. We're going to look at God's definition for marriage and some of the one of the single greatest things that can move the needle of health in your relationship towards the good. So join us for part four. We pray for you, and then we're going to respond in worship here. God, thank you for your word. It confronts absolutely every single one of us, myself included. And God, how many times have I failed at this list to be patient and kind and loving with my spouse, with my kids, with my friends. 
God, would you do a work in us and would you produce the kind of fruit that we are, that we so, so desire? Like, we want this. I want this for myself. I want this for us. Holy Spirit, come help us with these hard things. Would you give us a mindfulness of all of this, even as we part from this place? And there will be opportunities to love like this yet today. Empower us, God, in the name of Christ, through his spirit we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.